whilst I had a wonderful time on my day off at Thought Park yesterday, I ended up queuing for about an hour and 45 minutes for one of my rides. And uh, that wasn't particularly fun. Now, of course, there is the fast track system. Is there not a fast track system? Exactly. Can you not pay for the privilege of skipping the line? If, if you value your time highly, should you not just simply pay more, Daniel? There is, but, you know, it's like a tenor per ride. And, you know, it's a great example of how price discrimination can work and, and be successful and, and better satisfy divergent consumer preferences. But at the same time, it kind of made me feel a little bit communist looking at the people <laughs> in the fast track queue. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addison Issues podcast. My name is Vethi Lesh. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our head of program, Sandra Pryor, as well as Victoria Houston, the head of regulatory affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing online abuse, the return of COVID and the New Zealand trade deal. The tragic murder of Sir David Amos has led to calls for the government's forthcoming online safety bill to be strengthened, uh, including, as has been in the news quite a lot recently, the end of online anonymity specifically. Uh, Matthew, starting with you, why has Sir David's murder been linked with online speech issues? Is this, in your opinion, justified or is it something of MPs attempting to kind of uh, attach another issue to something where it really shouldn't be attached to? You look at it, it is an interesting and fascinating question, I think, about why the, this linkage has been made. Because on the face of it, and, and quite obviously, the murder of Sir David Amos has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with online anonymity or social networks. Um, but by all indications, that this was a jihadi terrorist attack. This was somebody who was, who was motivated by an extremist ideology, who was indoctrinated um, by an extremist preacher, who is more than happy to put out their name publicly, um, and very likely has nothing to do whatsoever with social media. What we're classically seeing here, though, is, is the boogeyman, uh, and, and um, uh, Victoria put this quite well, uh, this moral panic around social media, that basically every single societal issue, no matter what it is, no matter how tangentially interconnected or not connected whatsoever, um, becomes back to social media. The best claim I think you can make is, well, MPs are also being abused online, and this is a question about MP safety. Really, this isn't actually a question about MP safety. This is a question about Islamic extremism and tackling that, that central issue, mm. um, which I can say very far outside of my expertise, but it seems like the existing programs aren't working. The prevent program hasn't proven effective in this case. Security services haven't provided proper security for MPs. And you think that would be the kind of the debate we'd be having today. But we seem to be shying away from that very serious debate about Islamic terrorism because people just don't want to don't want to um, face it because it, it is politically incorrect as an issue. So therefore, instead, it is very politically correct just to blame everything on Jack Dorsey and, and Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, there's something kind of disturbing to me about how um, Sir David's parliamentary colleagues ended up bringing this issue around to online anonymity. I think that the kind of case for, for them that they tried to make as well uh, a few days before the, the incident, what happened was um, Sir David mentioned that he was particularly aggrieved and worried by the uh, online abuse of female MPs. And they've tried to kind of link that to, to saying that he, oh, he therefore supported some of the measures in the online safety bill and, and more broadly the end of online anonymity. And I, I don't think that there is a particularly strong case for that link. We don't know, we, we won't know, um, but that's the, the kind of case that's been 
made. But I guess, Victoria, going on to the actual the question itself, um, do you think there is a case for cracking down on online anonymity? Do you think it will make the internet a safer place? Because that's certainly what a lot of MPs seem to think, given their experience with uh, experiencing online abuse from people sometimes with anonymous accounts. I don't think there's any evidence for that at all. MPs are obviously fairly obsessed with this, but I think this is a classic case of a sort of availability bias because this is something that they seem to experience a lot, which clearly isn't nice for them and is clearly wrong, but it would be very disproportionate to base such a wide-ranging policy that affects really fundamental rights as well as economic aspects to do with um, digital markets to, to base that on um, MPs being a bit upset. Um, and all the evidence that I'm aware of is that actually anonymity is not particularly linked to degrees of civility or threat. And oftentimes the, the most uh, offensive abuse that we've seen, for example, the, the race, racial abuse to the footballers after the European Championships, the great majority of that was from people who were quite happy to put their names to it. Um, not to mention that most of them weren't even in this country at all as it, as it transpired. So there's so many practical issues. And I'd say actually even people who support the online safety bill, so, for example, some of the experts who've been given evidence to the scrutiny committees who are looking at the legislation now, they, they've discussed in that committee whether, obviously this was before the tragic murder of, of Sir David, but those uh, committees have discussed with some experts who are broadly supportive of the bill and its aims, uh, whether anonymity is a good idea and something that should be specifically added to the bill. And broadly speaking, the experts in the evidence session that I was just reading over sort of said there is no evidence to support it and there's no real reason um, to to introduce anonymity um, yeah. and it comes with lots of associated costs that you know people will feel that they can't participate in debate on sensitive or controversial topics and essentially it just becomes a way for the establishment to exclude uh, dissenting voices. It seems like there's actually a lot of research, um, not, not only is Twitter saying that 99% of the, the accounts that sent um, abuse to footballers after the Euros were actually identified, 99%. Um, and on top of that, there's, there's research looking at Twitter and, and social media firestorms, and actually a lot of them, uh, the, the majority of, of the abuse comes from named accounts. And that's the theory behind that is it, it's largely because a lot of the, the kind of pylon abuse is a is a social um groupy kind of right. um process mm -hmm. Pe people follow each other and if they see one person ab abusing and or a lot of other people abusing they, they get on the bandwagon whilst anonymous accounts don't feel as much social pressure because they're not identified that they, they don't need to feel like they're holding up a reputation and therefore they're actually ironically less abusive um there's also just this point about you would lose a lot from public debate um, if if people aren't able to express themselves anonymously, a lot of the accounts around COVID, 
um, on, on all sorts of different sides of the issue were anonymous. So there were people who might actually have a day job doing something completely different. They, they don't want their opinions um, linked to their identity. Um, but on top of that, just even from a, a kind of, you know, left-wing social justice perspective, there's just so many people out there um, who, who you know, th- this is in some ways more of a traditional class issue or more of a traditional injustice issue. And I'm thinking about gay kids here who um, aren't out to their parents who, who might want to use the internet a little bit more freely and openly and, and talk about these issues to other people, um, but can't do that, put their name to it. I'm, th- I'm talking about a, a woman who's um, running away from an abusive partner um, who might want to be anonymous online because they, they don't want to be found. They're hiding for good reason. So about whistleblowers and, and, and dissidents from, from authoritarian countries. I, I, I saw this um, one Twitter account of a Hong Kong um, who said, I, I, if I had to put my name on, on my Twitter account, my real name, um, I, I, I couldn't go back to, to my country um, and, and visit my family anytime because um, they, they just wouldn't let me in and, and my, my safety would be at risk, uh, especially under the, the, the national security laws. There's just so many obvious use cases of why free speech is, is sometimes needs to be done anonymously and why that is in itself a good. And just because, you know, obviously some people do abuse it and, and the abuse is a problem doesn't mean that everyone should lose the right to, to online and a minimum if, if that's what they need. It is a privilege that, that we have, that we, we are in jobs where we can express our opinions quite freely and openly. But I assume most of our listeners don't have that um, and, and most people out there don't have that at all. But it's hard for the, the kind of elite class, the, the blue tick class who says, and online I'm in it, well, you're fine putting your opinions your name you're not going to get that kind of abuse but think about other people well this is this is what um some people are proposing as a sort of compromise solution i had an exchange on twitter with the former dcms minister matt warman who was sort of saying well you know we do want anonymity but sort of not complete anonymity almost a sort of he didn't use the word but it becomes a sort of pseudonymity where um you perhaps identify yourself to the platform and you then become a verified user and then own, you can have an option where you can choose to only interact with fellow verified users, which just becomes a way for MPs to shut themselves away from having to hear people who disagree with them, which is fine. They have every right to do that, but it shouldn't become a sort of um, de facto state mandated condition that platforms have to offer. If there is a market for that kind of more private verified messaging platform, then, you know, by all means offer it. Arguably that's what WhatsApp is, right? If you only want to interact with people who, who you know and who you trust and who you know aren't going to hurl horrible threats and abuse at you, um, just use WhatsApp or adjust your setting. There are already heaps of settings on Facebook and Twitter that are available to people to control uh, what they see. And I do think there's an irony here because if you really think that these threats of violence are, are real, then surely you'd want to know about them. If you don't think that they're real, just shut off your replies and don't read them. I mean, I just, I, I think there are lots of self-help remedies available to people. Yeah. And we, yet we, they are just using it, using this, uh, you know, the the, the the murder of Sir David and and all of these horrible things that happen. They're using it rather cynically as a platform to push the policy measures that they already want. Ruth Smith, who is a former Labour MP, makes this point very elegantly, and and she got a lot of anti-Semitic abuse. If she didn't know about what people were sending her, um, she couldn't 
protect herself properly. This is someone who who's not just you know in a theoretical position. She she is actually getting um, death threats and and quite aggressive and and real. I think some genuine and real threats, and she needs to know about it so she can give it to the police. Um, and and simply um, ending online anonymity isn't going to solve the the fact that people mean her harm. Um, and and simply. Uh, even removing that content immediately. Obviously, it should be removed from the, 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 the platforms um, when they're notified about it because it, it is no doubt unlawful abuse and it no doubt contracts, contradicts the terms of, of service of the platforms. Um, you need to know about it. There's two things here that really disturb me about this rush towards ending online anonymity. The first one is just simply that, in my experience, a lot of the people who've come out of the work and begun to advocate for this in recent, advocate for this in recent days, have basically not considered any of the issues that both of you have so eloquently just brought up. Never mind the, the kind of very much uncertain benefits that are being proposed, the lack of evidence around how anonymity may or may not affect people's level of civility online. They just haven't considered things like, for example, um, an LGBT person who has not come out to their family and values anonymity for that reason. They haven't considered even more mundane things around thing, things like Glassdoor, for example, the hiring mm -hmm. platform and how it's quite useful to have feedback mechanisms where you can be honest about your experience at a particular company without jeopardizing your future job prospects. And all, all of these other sort of things around free speech that you've mentioned as well, Victoria. The, the other thing that concerns me, and you mentioned this in terms of the, the people who have at least are at least aware of some of the potential costs think that this can all be solved with well we'll just make it sort of pseudo anonymity we'll require platforms to verify even if we don't um, require them to give your full name or your real name online well that doesn't solve any of the issues that we've just brought up there's still a massive chilling effect on free speech because you know, as, as much as tech companies try and do this, we, we discussed this with regards to the uh, proposals for the porn laws and uh, age verification for those. Data leaks occur all the time <laughs> when it comes to various companies. There's certainly a possibility of doing that. So you're still going to get the chilling effect on free speech. And then obviously the added risk of, well, if a data leak does occur, then a lot of people are going to be placed in danger because they thought they were anonymous um, or some people at least think they were anonymous and acted accordingly, and then they're going to place themselves at serious risk. So that doesn't solve the problem. Now, as you say, there, there may be a market for people um, who want to have some sort of opt-in optional system designed by the companies uh, and perhaps helped or, or at least advised upon by, by the government or something like that. If it's optional, if it's opt-in, I'm far less concerned about it. I personally would consider that sort of system for a lot of the social media networks I'm on to be vastly inferior. I get a lot of value from anonymous accounts. Uh, mm -hmm. And so do, I think, the vast majority of people who use Twitter and Facebook and uh, all, these, um, all of these various platforms as well. I mean, especially Twitter. It's a classic example. I mean, yeah, ASI itself, we um, published a series from an anonymous doctor working in the NHS during the early days of the pandemic, which really highlighted some of the issues that... Um, that the NHS was facing at the time. And, you know, under the kind of no anonymity system, we simply wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, whistleblowers would be completely screwed over. It just wouldn't happen anywhere near the same extent as you said, Matthew. So there's so many things that this is going to harm, both on the, the kind of more mundane level when it comes to things like Glassdoor, as I mentioned, but also some really kind of key elements of a functioning democracy and a functioning free press when it comes to whistleblowers and people feeling like they're able to express themselves. And 
nobody seems to have thought about it. Most people haven't even considered these issues. And that's just that's just a joke to me. It's ridiculous that they haven't. It, it seems um, quite hilarious that the original briefings about online anonymity were provided anonymously from politicians <laughs> to journalists. They, they seem to be happy enough to, to be able to say more wider and broader things on background, um, yet somehow have an issue when other people are doing just the same thing that they do every single day. Yeah. But I think, you know, Daniel, to your to your point about, you know, RMPs thinking about these things, are they taking seriously their responsibilities now, especially, dare I say, post-Brexit, where aspects of um, digital regulation like this probably in the past would have had an EU element to them. In fact, the, the EU is pursuing its own version of content regulation at the moment with the Digital Services Act. Now, um, I'm not saying that that's any better. In fact, it's currently looking rather similar to the UK online safety bill. But I think the point is that when you take back control of your lawmaking, your lawmakers have to step up and apply due rigor and scrutiny to what they're doing. Um, and, and I'm afraid at the moment, there's, there's little evidence that that's happening. What I find particularly chilling, actually, is that ministers and MPs are making such a big deal about our online safety bill as being some kind of gold standard for the world and a world leading uh, regulation to make the internet safer. And you can, I mean, you alluded to this just now, you can just imagine what an authoritarian country, um, dare I say, an even more authoritarian country than this one, uh, might do with these sort of, this sort of example, this sort of standard approach to curtailing anonymity, to curtailing potentially, quote, harmful speech, which includes things like misinformation, or things that threaten uh, national culture, you know, that in in the hands of um, a, a, a less democratic country, um, it's it. And, and you know, we're not just giving them the cover to do that with impunity. It seems to me, which is again something that MPs just don't seem to be. It doesn't seem to register with them at the moment. Yeah, there's something very perverse about the idea of global Britain actually just being justifying uh, the interventions of authoritarian regimes on free speech online. I don't think that's what most MPs thought of when they came up with that phrase. Well, but, they're not uh, thinking at all. That's the problem. Well, quite. They, they've gotten lazy uh, and now they have to now they have to actually scrutinise their own laws and, and think about how regulating the internet in various ways might cause unintended consequences. But it doesn't seem like they are doing it. It's especially surprising for the Conservatives as well, who I think should have a, a better idea than most about when it comes to needing anonymity online in order to feel free to promote some ideas that at least in some spaces online aren't always particularly popular. For any of our listeners that frequent Twitter, I'm sure they're familiar with uh, the centre-right not always getting a warm and mm. welcome reception um, and the kind of value that anonymity can bring sometimes when it comes to promoting ideas that might not necessarily be as popular, you might not want associated with yourself when it comes to say for example your job or just indeed your, your social reputation in various other areas but I think with that it's probably time to move on to the second section of our podcast and unfortunately it's about the fact that Covid is back and back with a vengeance. Covid is certainly back in the news this week as cases have again reached over 50,000 and various NHS groups are calling for an immediate move to Plan B or Plan B+, including making masks compulsory, 
introducing vaccine passports and potentially even a return to social distancing. I suppose the, the, the first question here is, how concerned should we be about cases? How strong is the link between cases, hospitalizations and deaths? And is the NHS about to be overwhelmed? Daniel. So there's a few things to say on the cases point and, and the link with deaths, as you mentioned. It's true that we've got um, sort of the highest rates, at least on paper, when it comes to cases in Europe. Uh, and that's obviously something that calls for serious concern. But it does ignore or kind of discount the fact that the UK does a lot more testing than many other European countries as well. Um, not saying we certainly shouldn't worry about this and perhaps react uh, in certain ways, but just to kind of start things off, we do a lot more testing. Um, and you have to compare, say, the, the kind of positivity rates um, of testing in the UK to, to other countries as well and, and bear that in mind. The other thing is, and it comes to this kind of link between case rates uh, and death rates. And we're certainly not at the top of Europe when it comes to death rates. Now, obviously, there's a, uh, a kind of time lag aspect to this uh, that we should be concerned about. But again, just to kind of set up where we're at, and I think push against this narrative that actually the UK is in the worst position in Europe, which seems to have become popular amongst some, at least, that's not really the case at the moment when it comes to the outcome that we're most concerned with, which, of course, is death rates. You know, uh, if we have a, a fully functioning vaccine and booster shot program, then case rates become less important um, and the link between cases and death rates becomes less clear. Um, obviously, it still exists, but it's less of a cause for alarm. Um, of course, the kind of key way of combating this or the ideal way of combating this without needing to go back to some of the more uh, some of the more interventionist lockdown-esque measures that are being talked about is a successful booster program uh, and it seems like that that's finally starting it certainly seems to be effective we've seen some new data come out around the effectiveness of booster shots extremely high in the you know 98 99% territory once you've had your booster shot in terms of um, preventing serious adverse consequences and death um, but it certainly seems like the mood music at the moment uh, amongst public health bodies um, scientific advisory bodies and Perhaps, though I'm less uh, sure about this, the, the government is to start moving towards this Plan B program because they are just absolutely terrified that we're going to have a, a you know a winter of discontent again, and the NHS is going to be overwhelmed, and that this kind of mindset of the NHS being overwhelmed is still very much at the forefront um, of a lot of the government and the cabinet's minds. Yeah, I think this is um, a, a great example of the kind of cherry picking and go post moving that we've seen, especially by um, overexcitable media outlets and activist doctors on Twitter throughout the, the pandemic, really. Um, you know, as Daniel alluded to, the, the picture that you get about the position in the UK can be very much directed by which particular data you look at and whom you choose to compare us with. There was a, a darkly hilarious um, thread on Twitter from The Times, which you would think would be a very trustworthy source of information where they said Britain is an outlier, we're doing so badly compared to every country in Europe. And yet the graph that they showed compared us with about three other countries in Europe that they'd obviously picked to make it look 
the worst possible performance. And, you know, as Daniel mentioned, they chose, I think, um, a sort of absolute number of positive tests rather than positivity rate or level of hospitalization, which would arguably be a more um, useful metric of how serious the situation actually is. And I'm afraid uh, the government has slightly played into this by publishing a plan B in the first place um, that included the kinds of measures that now the doctors trades union and the NHS confederation, you know, these um, producer interests essentially are now uh, locking onto and calling for these and more things to be done. I completely reject the idea that our fundamental freedoms um, and civil liberties should somehow be available to the government to dial up or down based on healthcare capacity. We should never have opened the door to this in the first place. The government should have ruled out doing lockdowns again, shouldn't have opened the door to this kind of lobbying by these activist groups in the first place. And I guess, you know, in, in a sense, they just, they set themselves a massive, um, a sort, well, they set up a hostage to fortune, basically, by saying that they would consider these, but by not elaborating on what the parameters would be. I think they said something like, if the NHS is in danger of being overwhelmed. Well, obviously, these um, uh, the BMA and the NHS Confederation always think the NHS is in danger of being overwhelmed. That's that's their that's their default position. In fact, it is the default position of the NHS. That's how that's how the NHS works. So they could they obviously didn't specify what the threshold would be for Plan B. Now, of course, they couldn't do that because the danger was that it would be met, and then they'd have to do it. So they 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 laid themselves a trap here. Um, and I, I just don't think that, that Plan B should have been um, published. I don't think there should have been a Plan B, by the way. I'm not suggesting it should have been suppressed. Um, you know, it wasn't supported by cost-benefit analysis. Of course, it of course it wasn't. None none of the government's lockdown responses have been supported by cost-benefit analysis. Vaccine passports is just a a made-up policy with with no um, evidence that it would actually deliver any benefits whatsoever. And I and I think this has been um, a bit of a um, a mishandling at this stage, unfortunately. Yeah, as someone who was, it was a little bit, um, or might be substantially more sympathetic to some of the uh, restrictions last year when I thought that, that there was a, a more meaningful case for a collective action problem with respect to COVID. Um, we, it was pre-vaccine when, when we had these huge case numbers. Um, and if, if there wasn't some form of you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, at, at some level, you would have genuinely seen um, even higher kind of mass casualty events. Um, I do, and I've, I've always worried that the precedent this sets is, is pretty bad because you know, back in 2018, the, the NHS over the winter crisis shut down um, non-urgent surgery. So arguably the NHS was, you know, quote unquote, overwhelmed um, in 2018 when Jeremy Hunt um, took that step. So therefore we have to ask ourselves, should, should we be as a society um, willing to take massive restrictions on our liberty and, and shutting down our normal social activities in, in order to prevent um, 
it, what what is a kind of a norm in the NHS, which is it it, it runs close to capacity um, at all times. It, as you as you rightly pointed out, um, it, focusing on hospital hospital admission numbers, you're talking still um, COVID is in the single digits in the NHS. The issue isn't so much, I guess, COVID, but the combination of COVID with everything else and with the bad um, winter flu and cold season, because we we haven't been socially interacting as much, so there will be a lot of pressures. And I don't think this is the last we're going to hear of it. And I do worry that the extent the government does prioritise the NHS might go to the extreme where they, they do bring in additional measures, whether, whether or not um, they're, they're needed or, or justified. Um, that's at the same time, I, you know, I, I do worry to some extent about the rising case numbers. I think it's going to be a tough couple of months. I'm a bit disappointed with the government and, and we've talked about our um, report um, a, a few times previously on the podcast with respect to, to thinking about um, what, what living with COVID means and the need to still be taking meaningful um, measures, not with respect to non-pharmaceutical measures, but with respect to boosters, um, with respect to offering vaccines um, earlier, uh, much earlier, in fact, getting good investment in. It was good to see the government announce this week um, something we talked about, which is investment in, in antiviral medicines, which, which mean when someone gets COVID that they're sent something at home, um, some pills to take, kind of like we, we now deal with um, other viral diseases like HIV, um, AIDS uh, epidemic pandemic has been very much um, solved more or less by antivirals, um, which could prove quite effective with respect to COVID. The government's got a big order in for that. So thinking about other things the government can do, um, I, I, we haven't heard any news yet about the government investing in next generation vaccines, that um, there's these nasal spray vaccines that could be 100% effective at preventing transmission um, at just at a next level in terms of effectiveness. So thinking about how you can take steps to ensure that we don't end up in a situation where we're in another lockdown, um, which would be extremely costly. And I know uh, you're probably going to come back at me now, Victoria, and say, well, we should never even counter as lockdown. But I, I don't know, I'm a bit of a political realist here that we still need to take steps yeah, in order to reduce the political risk. Of I, I would just like to break the link between vaccines and and, and freedoms. I, I just don't think there is a, a justification for that at all. I do not accept the premise that our fundamental rights to live our lives, run our business, associate with friends and families should be contingent on whether people have taken a state mandated vaccine or not that we've got ourselves into this situation to me is is profoundly worrying i, I think just to kind of square the circle somewhat here um though i, I certainly uh, lean more towards matthew's view on the non-pharmaceutical intervention side of things regardless of that your view either way on the kind of justification of vaccines not if vaccines aren't around then somehow lockdowns and other things like that are or aren't justified the politics of this suggests that that link is very much there whether we like it or not um, and certainly there's you know there's a case for trying to work to break that link on the political side as well but given that it does currently exist i think it, it means that it matters more than ever that especially when it comes to the current times the booster shot program is rolled out as quickly as can be humanly possible. And that's something that I think, you know, from public health perspective, from uh, uh, just general well-being and preventing suffering perspective, but also from a preventing further lockdowns perspective is something that's absolutely key. And it looks like there's, you know, there's been some progress, there's been some positive news about the Boost Shop program, but there are still, you know, several million people who are eligible uh, under the current guidelines who have not yet receive them. Uh, and unlike, I think, some of the earlier days of the pandemic, this isn't as much to do with an issue of vaccine supply. There are, there are tens of billions of doses of, um, of vaccine in sitting in warehouses in 
the UK, it's more of a demand question. And this comes back to what you were saying earlier, Victoria, that the NHS is actually, in fact, in constant crisis because it can't deal with just the sheer level of demand at the best of times, but certainly not as we move towards uh, towards winter. Uh, and we've got these kind of factors that we didn't have as much uh, when it came to the initial vaccine rollouts and that there's higher demand for GP appointments when it comes to, to various other uh, ailments as well. Um, people are, are more willing now, given that we, we've kind of moved out of the, the worst stages uh, of restrictions to, to make those sort of appointments. We've also got just the, the kind of uh, annual flu jab rollout as well. So there's a lot more demand being placed upon GPs, um, upon the health service more generally. Um, and they're, at the moment, they're not coping as well as they could be. It's not quite reached the critical stages that I think some ministers are worried about yet, but it certainly seems to be, without a significant increase in booster vaccine uh, rollout, it certainly seems to be heading that way. And hence, you know, sadly, for, for better or for worse, I, th I think for worse in this particular case, um, more and more calls for a plan B or a plan B plus or a plan C or whatever letter of the alphabet we want to use today. Sure. I think, I mean, I think you're right. This clearly is the, the political reality, but I think we do, you know, as independent uh, mm -hmm. think tankers and um, people who have a bit of a voice in this have to keep being aware of the way the goalposts keep moving here. It, it, I'm sure you both remember when, when we first got the great news about the effectiveness of the, the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines, we were talking about um, just getting the most vulnerable vaccinated, you know, so they say that over 70s, we would need uh, or perhaps 80% of, of that cohort vaccinated, and then we would cry freedom and that would be the end of lockdowns. So I think we just need to be very cautious about the, 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 the speed at which the goalposts have moved from that to mm. us all needing to be in a, on a constant conveyor belt of, uh, of boosters with a constant threat of having our freedoms removed from us again. Yeah, there was a good uh, tweet from your, your colleague, Chris Snowden, um, a couple of days ago, I think, where he pointed out things get much worse. You might hit the bottom end, but the lowest confidence interval, the yeah. stages, most optimistic scenario when it comes to hospitalizations per day. And I think that's quite a good kind of example of, of potential go, goalpost moving that you mentioned there. Just, just so I think it's worth unpacking, though, that um, what we're effectively doing here is setting up, and this is a debate which I don't think we've been willing to have, and, and someone set up recently that the quite theoretical, what would have happened if there were no vaccines, if we never had effective vaccines? Um, we would have had to, in a sense, accept a much higher number of deaths. Um, at the moment, we're kind of at the point where we're accepting, what is it, somewhere 100 to 200 deaths a day, that adds up to over a year, something like 30, 40, 50,000, depending on if this kind of just keeps going around. Is that now just kind of, we're going to have to accept in society that there is a lower number of, sorry, a much higher number of background deaths that, that you know, over the next couple of decades, just because now we've got COVID, um, this, this is just something that we're going to have to live with. Um, it's not small numbers here. It's, it's, it's not huge numbers. You can say, you know, the average person who, uh, there was a recent study, the average person who dies with a vaccine is an 85-year-old with, you know, five underlying health that conditions. That dies of COVID. It's, it, that, that dies of COVID, um, who is vaccinated, um, is an 85-year-old of with five underlying right. conditions. So it's, it's someone who's already got a lot of issues. Who's you know who you know you could argue is going to die soon anyway. The reverse of that, of course, is well without COVID, they might have um, 
survived for five, 10, 15 years longer, potentially. It's, it's really hard to say with these things because everyone old has an underlying condition or, or two or three or more, whatever. So I, I think it's that kind of moral debate that we haven't been able to reach is what's sometimes lacking because politicians obviously don't want to accept the fact that um, there is just going to be this high level of deaths now. So, so I made two points on that. The first is, whilst it's true the kind of the average person in that scenario dying is someone who who is quite simply likely to be dead fairly soon anyway, though you know not as soon as if they they hadn't got COVID. Um, so that is you know a, a still a very significant and important thing to consider when it comes to the moral calculus here. You've also got people who might not die from COVID, but still experience a significant amount of suffering and severe illness um i did not enjoy getting covid one bit it was absolutely horrible uh, it was for two weeks and i don't want to kind of you know play the world's tiniest violin here too much but the, the general point that there is a lot of additional you know negative consequences on people's well-being health um and you know with potential for some kind of long covid things uh, it, it's not just necessarily always a short-term temporary thing as well but on the other hand, the the kind of as a, of course, as listeners know, utilitarian. I love thought experiments, and the trolley problem is something that keeps me awake at night all the time thinking about that. But the sort of thought experiment around, well, you know, what happened if we'd never have a vaccine? To me, is potentially interesting to kind of tease out people's moral intuitions on this. But it's kind of imagining in a world that is so so different from as where you know. Uh, combined efforts of human innovation simply cannot solve or I cannot begin to make a dent in um, such a, a well-recognized problem that I'm not sure it's necessarily the best one to, to think about the counterfactual scenario. I think there was, you know, and hindsight is a wonderful thing, but I think it was always very likely that we were going to get a vaccine in the medium term, or at the very least, some serious innovations and developments in terms of medical treatment for COVID, even if it wasn't a vaccine, something that would seriously reduce the potential risks of death from cases. But let's be, you know, let's be clear here about some of the, the cost side of um, these, what's now euphemistically called social distancing measures for the very people that we are trying to protect here. We're talking about someone who's maybe in their 80s, um, perhaps, you know, has a few underlying conditions as most people who who make it to that age do um, and we're, we're trying to give them that extra perhaps three or five years of, of, of a decent quality of life so that they don't um, have it taken away from them early by getting COVID. Okay, all very laudable. But has anyone asked these 83 year olds if they would like to have those extra two or five years of life whilst living in loneliness because no one's allowed to come and visit them or perhaps living in a care home where the staff are all masked and no one's allowed to come and see them apart from maybe wave at them through a window you know this is not costless for the very people that we are trying to help and protect and i dare say if you asked um i know certainly if you asked my parents which they would choose i i know what their answer would be and it wouldn't be a miserable life separated from their children and grandchildren living in fear and, and masked up. Uh, and I think that's a, an important issue on the cost side that I think gets lost. Yeah, I, I just kind of just finally just one last thought here on, on the other big news this week, which has really surrounded GPs. There's been a bit of a, a tussle between the government 
calling for GPs to increase in-person appointments. The, the GPs have said this is ridiculous and now they're, they're threatening going on strike. How do we feel about the, the government pushing this requirement onto GPs um, to, to, to see their patients? I mean, GPs are classically, although they're part of the NHS, they're independent practices. Uh, should they have that kind of operational independence or is the government right to, to force that upon them? So I'm quite shocked that they don't really have this obligation to actually see their patients. Um, and, you know, whilst they are, as you say, independent uh, businesses in, in one sense, they are contracted to the NHS to provide a certain level of primary care services. And the, the idea that they can switch from a couple of years ago actually being rather resistant to uh, new technologies and online consultations because they thought it was a threat to their business model. Now suddenly they seem to have developed a taste for it and, and it's the opposite. And, and, and now um, it's seen as being oppressive to, to request uh, humbly that they actually see some patients. And I don't think it should be up to the, the GPs as to whether they see patients in person or not. It should be up to the patients. We're the ones who are paying for it. Um, and if a person, especially someone who is by definition going to have something wrong with them and not be feeling too well, wants to see a person, wants to see their doctor in person, then they should have every right to do so. Yeah, it, it's not an issue that I've, I've kind of thought too long and hard about, but my, my initial reaction is, that is very similar. It's not kind of as though they are completely separate private businesses and, you know, they can compete with the, each other on a, a lovely market basis about, uh, whether or not they want to offer an in-person or a, a remote service. And of course, there's demand for both um, from patients. And, you know, pe people have different preferences around that. Personally, I wouldn't be that bothered about remote appointments, I think. Um, in fact, I'd probably prefer them, to be honest. It would just be more convenient. But I completely respect and understand the many, many people who would prefer a, a, an in-person appointment and the various reasons why that might be the case. Um, and it's certainly, you know, that I think that's a characteristic Perhaps it's more shared by the younger population in the UK that they're, they're more happy to do remote appointments and stuff like that. For many people, they might not simply be able to familiarise themselves with the technology. So it's actually it really is an access issue there, um, and something that I think that you know people who claim to appreciate a lot of the, the principles of the NHS uh, might appreciate, but apparently not. Um, and this seems to be you know very much producer interests using their their position of quite strong bargaining power given the NHS's nature um, in order to, to basically get the working conditions that they want patients to be damned. So I have a, a kind of an instinctive reaction that, yeah, that there should be, given that this is not a private business, that taxpayers are involved in funding this and that it is supposed to serve the needs of everyone in the UK, then actually, yes, uh, GPs shouldn't be kind of granted this privilege of, of not having to do that. Especially, I think that there's also a practical issue here, which is given the, the sort of people that are less likely to access or, or be able even to use remote appointments, also the sort of people that I think we're most concerned with when it comes to uh, exactly. COVID, but also the, the flu, uh, winter flu crisis, as it always is, uh, more generally, then there's an especially strong case here for making sure that those people are seen. Because if they're not, then it could push up uh, death rates from COVID and more broadly um, background deaths from various other sort of winter illnesses that seem to plague this country more so than, than many others. So, yeah, I'm, I'm 
that's certainly my instinctive reaction. And, um, and also, I think after having spoken about this for the past minute, my uh, very well justified and rational reaction as well. <laughs> well, on that note of very well justified and rational actions, let's think about the New Zealand trade deal. The UK has reached a second new trade deal, this time with our good friends in New Zealand. Uh, Matthew, going to you first, and the ASI has done a fair bit of background work on this deal specifically and the kind of support and justifications around it. What does the, the deal on paper as we have it achieve? Is it a substantial free trade agreement and does it really change a significant uh, portion of how we trade with New Zealand? Look, I think that the deal is is broadly good news and to be welcomed. Um, just kind of diving into the details, uh, it, it will abolish all tariffs on trade between um, New Zealand and the UK um, immediately. All about all tariffs, New Zealand tariffs, and then the, there will be some tariffs the UK holds on, particularly on, on agricultural sector goods, but will be phased down over fifteen years. Um, it makes a favourable rule changes that will boost British car exports. Um, to New Zealand and, and financial insurance sectors. It has some um, small, good, immediate changes on migration, recognizing professional qualifications. Um, add on top of that, um, the, the, the fact that uh, it will also do some, some good stuff around um, data transfers to allowing kind of tech companies to operate more easily across borders. Um, in practical terms, what does that mean? Well, it means Britain's benefiting uh, from greater access to high quality kiwi, beef and lamb, wine and honey, um, whilst the kiwis will get access to zero tariff to things like British clothing, buses, ships, bulldozers and excavators, which are, are current exports in, into New Zealand that, that don't um, aren't currently tariff free. So I, I think in the classic sense, this is a good trade deal on on the face of it, and and something we should we should welcome and support. Um, there's there's been the usual suspects in in the agriculture sector claiming that, that you know they get nothing out of this deal. Well, quite frankly, um, I don't think people really buy it at this point. It is um, becoming a little bit repetitive. Every time there's a deal, the agricultural sector you know is is going to go crazy and and say, well, this isn't fair. Quite frankly, if they can't compete internationally. Um, and, and they can't provide a quality product to people. Um, and, and they feel like they can't do that compared to a um, country that's you know, the other side of the world. You have to be a little bit worried and, and think about it, especially when there's already tariff and, and quota free access immediately from the European Union still today ongoing. So it's just it's just an absurd position. Um, we've done some polling on this previously. Most people do support, um, 61% support more trade with New Zealand, 69% think New Zealand has high quality standards of food safety and animal welfare. It's also a strong support for things like free movement and recognising nurses and doctors. So this is really kind of a political no-brainer. It's gotten actually a lot less attention than I think the Australia deal. It's the second rather than the first. Obviously, other issues going on as well at the same time, um, and it's it's relatively uncontroversial, I would I would think in practice. Well, I think it's always good to have, uh, even if it is the second rather than the first, make sure the ASI leads on spotlighting the free trade successes of uh, the UK in a post Brexit environment. Victoria, your reaction similar to Matthew? So I think it's it, it it's a good outcome in terms of tariff elimination obviously big beef and big lamb has got uh, has, has trampled all all over it a bit um, because we won't be phasing out our tariffs and quotas on New Zealand beef and and sheep meat for um, up to 15 years which is you know it's a sop to the to the farming lobby but if that's what we had to do to get it over the line then then I guess that's uh, you know a political necessity. I do have some reservations 
about free trade agreements generally, actually, and this one has some some good examples of of that of um, of the sort of drawbacks I think of free trade agreements, where sometimes they end up entrenching things that aren't actually very good for free trade. And again, it's all part of that political balance. So if in order to get um, tariff elimination across the line, we need to bring in some dripping wet stuff about gender equality and um, fossil fuel elim elimination, then maybe that's just what we have to do. And we don't need to sort of worry about it too much because oftentimes those um, sort of horizontal commitments are um, rather weak and and don't entail doing very much or changing your laws. But I think there is something quite damaging about sort of going with the contours of current political trends and fads. It, it, and I think a lot of that is is reflected in there. And, and ultimately, these things do tend to be anti free trade um, and and quite pro protectionism and, and get used as excuses to um, retain certain regulations and barriers in place. I also think um, there's, there's an irony going on here with the, the digital chapters, the sort of e-commerce um, and, and data flows arrangements that, that Matthew just alluded to, which are you know, quite good and beneficial in principle. But I, and actually, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the new Secretary of State for International Trade, one of her first um, actions when she took on the role was to give uh, a speech about reducing digital trade barriers, uh, which is all to the good. But how can we then, uh, at the same time, be pushing legislation like the online safety bill? Yes, I'm back on that again. Um, and other perhaps even or just as damaging interventions that have been a bit less high profile, like the proposed competition law reforms, that um, will empower a new digital markets unit to break up big tech and prescribe how they need to run their business. So I, I, I really struggle with um, how, on the one hand, we can parade around on the world stage going on about how we want to reduce barriers to digital trade uh, and open up services industries and, and, and e-commerce, and then at home do things that will actually do the exact opposite of that. Mm. and. If it is in fact possible to put in all of these groundbreaking, ambitious chapters in free trade agreements, whilst pursuing these pretty onerous measures in your domestic regulation, I think that to me really undermines the value of having these digital chapters in the first place if they don't actually um, cause any restraint on these kinds of measures um, that, that actually have the exact opposite effects to what the digital chapters purport to be trying to do. I noticed in a lot of reaction to this uh, free trade deal announcement, a sort of similar thing to what happened with Australia, where people who, in general, I would say, tended to oppose Brexit, uh, were very quick and, and uh, a little bit too eager in my mind to point out that, well, you know, the government's modelling suggests this basically make no difference to our economic growth or, you know, 0.1% of GDP if we're, we're lucky. Um, and we've got this, I think, in general, we, we had it during the referendum debate when it came to uh, when it came to economic growth estimates from a potential post-Brexit US-UK free trade deal as well, that it simply wouldn't replace the, uh, the losses that we got from potential restrictions on trade with the European Union. Uh, Matthew, do you think that the kind of the modelling or the, the thinking behind this um, 
I, not so much an objection, just, uh, oh, well, actually, it doesn't even matter. So uh, why are you even celebrating <laughs> that, that sort of thing? Do you, do you think that there's some merit to that? Or do you think that it, it, there's something that's potentially flawed or, or just not worthwhile about that kind of uh, approach? Yeah, I mean, in the first instance, you probably don't want to exaggerate this. Mm. So New Zealand is, a rel and even Australia, relatively small um, countries and relatively small economies. Prosperous, yes. Important, you know, yes. But not um, the, the size of the EU market, which the UK will continue trading with um, no matter what, which is you know, half a billion people or so compared to five or six million people, which is the case in New Zealand. And that said, though, I think the, some of the modelling is, is quite suspect. In the first instance, the modelling is done before the trade deals are signed, so it's actually not reflecting the full details of the trade deal. Um, secondly, it's very hard to predict the future. This is why modelling in every instance, in every case, and you can talk about... Um, as you did earlier, epidemiological modeling, which is not too different to economic modeling. You know, you make the best assumptions. You you, you do try to create an alternative world where, where that happens, but you can only go so far on it. And, and one of the key issues with a lot of the government modeling with respect to trade, the modeling they're using isn't considering the dynamic effects. So what it's directly considering is here is the potential increase in trade and here's what the economic impact will be by removing tariffs on beef. Um, and and then seeing, you know, there's a bit more beef coming in. But it's thinking about what are the new industries that could be created as a result of this trade deal? What are the the, the benefits of the, the greater mobility and, and movement for business when it when it comes to setting up operations across borders? What what are some of the the um, broader um, geostrategic benefits you can't really account for. So, for example, joining CPTPP is uh, the kind of next step, and that this is a step on the road to, to joining that that much bigger trade agreement that does involve about um, half a half a billion people and um, trillions of. Um, uh, pounds of, of economic activity um, and on top of that just the also just that broader benefit when it comes to New Zealand which is um, New Zealand has become increasingly dependent on China about one third or so of their traders with China um, th this kind of puts a bit of a stronger link between New Zealand and democratic, more democratic countries. So there's a, there's a lot of auxiliary benefits to trade agreements you can't necessarily put in direct GDP terms, even if uh, the, the direct GDP term benefit, I don't think it's as small as the government's modeling shares, it's probably a little bit bigger, even if it's not huge in and of itself. I was just gonna say, I think, I, I think, uh, I think Matthew's right that the, the economic models tend not to capture the dynamic effects or a lot of the very positive spillover effects that you can get, not so, not only from tariff reductions, but from accepting disciplines on discriminatory domestic regulations on goods and services, which tend not to just benefit the country in the bilateral agreement, but um, you know all all countries on a on a multilateral basis, and. But I think, let's be very clear, the, the, the big thing about these deals with New Zealand and Australia now agreed in principle is that they are setting us up for the, the big one, the CPTPP. And if we can agree terms with Australia and New Zealand, which are you know pretty important, influential members of the CPTPP, if they will accept these terms with us, we are basically ticking off uh, the, the terms that we can then go forward to the, the the CPTPP with, and it seems to me to be quite a good omen actually that if we can agree terms with with Australia and New Zealand, um, and actually the CPTPP terms aren't too different from what we are now agreeing, that it does actually bode quite well for that negotiation. And, uh, you know, maybe we aren't going to put, uh, we're not going to have too many demands here that countries, the existing uh, members 
might have difficulty granting us exceptions from and, and all the rest of it. So um, I think it's it's quite a good sign for that wider um, project of getting into the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, on that positive note, and uh, I'm very happy to end on a positive note because we don't always do that on the Pin Factory podcast. I think it's time to bring things to a close. So I just want to thank my wonderful co-host and our head of research, Matthew Lesh, for his time, as well as Victoria Euston, our special guest for today, who is Head of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of The Pin Factory and more banter analysis. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.